Father, we do thank you that you are a giver, not a taker. Lord, we just pray that you would just enable all of us to continue to just trust in you. And we thank you, Lord, for a season of accelerated giving, Lord, in which you will be glorified for. We pray you speak to us now through your word. Enable us, Lord, to truly see you as you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was this little boy, and uh, he was writing a letter to Jesus for some Christmas gifts he really badly wanted. And so he sat down and he wrote, Dear Jesus, I have been very good for six months. And then he paused, crossed out six months, and wrote two months. And then he paused again and crossed it out and wrote two weeks. Then he crossed that out, put his pen down, got up, and went and got his jacket on, went down to... Uh, the garage and got his red wagon and walked down to a church on the corner that had a little nativity scene right outside the church. And he got the statue of the mother Mary, wrapped her in a blanket, put her in the red wagon, came back to his house, went back up to uh, the table where he was writing, picked up the pen and said, dear Jesus, if you ever hope to see your mother again. (laughs) Well, this Christmas, the Lord wants to uh, give us, each one of us, I think, a special uh, Christmas gift that you don't have to threaten him to receive it. I'd like us to continue to look at the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, and I want us to notice two things in particular in one verse. In one verse in this Christmas story, we see two things. We see what God gives for Christmas, and we see what you get for Christmas. And so let's go ahead and read the whole passage, and then we'll camp down on verse 14 of Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, starting in verse 10, says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. So this is the angel, of course, talking to the shepherds. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the peoples. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So I want you to notice particularly verse 14, because in this one verse, we see what God gets for Christmas and we see what you get for Christmas. The angel praised God by saying, glory to God in the highest. Then the angels go on to say, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. So God gets glory and we get peace. The coming of the Son of God into the world brings great glory to God and great peace to God's people. So first and foremost, God is glorified. Why? He's glorified because God devised a way. He devised a way to make peace with rebels on the earth. And he did it through the sending of his son. And second, peace is spread to everyone who receives his son as their savior and Lord. I mean, these are the great purposes really of the coming of Jesus. Glory ascending from man to God and peace descending from God to man. 
Now, God, of course, is the one who takes the initiative in this. He takes initiative in always. And one thing that people do not understand about God, I think, I think a lot of Christians as well, is that God is ultimately and primarily a giver, not a taker. He is ultimately a giver, not a taker. How do we know that? We know that because God is love, and love has to give. Love has to give. God is love. He is a giver. He can't help himself but to give. And on that first Christmas, he gave the greatest gift of all by giving us his son. John 3.16, let's read the most familiar verse here. For God so loved the world, but I want you to think in terms of Christmas now. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So God, the, the ultimate lover, gives the ultimate gift at Christmas, the giving of his son. But as we study the Bible, we realize that God didn't just start giving at Christmas. God has been a giver throughout history, all from the very beginning. There's an important verse, or two verses in the book of James, I want to remind you guys about. James chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It says this, do not be deceived. Now, why does he say that? He says that because so many are. He's talking to believers. It's so easy to be deceived about what he's about to say. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He says, don't be deceived by the, about this. God is good all the time, and every good thing you've ever received came down from him, the ultimate giver. God is love, and love has to give. God can't help himself. He has to give. He is not ultimately a taker. Even if you're thinking, but didn't Job say, the Lord gives, the Lord take us away, blessed be the name of the Lord? I'd say, yes, he said that, but he said it before the story was over. Because when you get to the end of the book of Job, he gives again. Because he's ultimately a giver, he has to do this because he can't help himself. Love gives. And the greatest love of all has given us the greatest gift of all. I was thinking about this this last week about all the gifts that God has given me. I just was thinking about even some of those times where God was just playful in his generosity. And I thought back to one particular event that I want to share with you a story about. <clears throat> I need to start, start the story by showing you a picture on the screen here. You need to see this picture of this kayaker by this well because this is the beginning of a story I want to tell you. It was a hot, hot summer, one of those summers where we have a several days in a row over 100 degrees. And I looked at Tracy and said, we got to get out of here for a few days. we got to find somewhere cool. I had a lot of Advantage miles stored up. I said, we can fly about anywhere. Let's find some place to go that's cool. And so I'm looking around for a place to go. And I came across a photo like this photo right here where there's a guy in a kayak next to a well. I thought, I wonder where that is, because that's where I want to go. And I found out that the, the photo I was looking at was actually happening in Tofino on Vancouver Island, Vancouver Island off the coast of mainland Canada. And so I thought, that's where we, I want to go. So we went ahead and made the arrangements to fly there. 
and to make our way to Tofino. And I couldn't wait. As soon as we got you know, where we are staying checked in, I wanted to go down to where they rented the kayaks. So I go down there, Tracy and I go down there, and we, we talk to the guy who rents the kayaks. I said, I want to rent a kayak you know, for two, and, I, and then tell me where the wells are. <laughs> and he looked at me and said, you can't do that. We don't rent, just rent kayaks. You can, get a, you can you know, be part of a tour. He says, and you can follow your guide in the harbor. He said, but I want to tell you, the wells don't come in the harbor. The wells stay out in the ocean. I said, I came all the way here to kayak with the whales. <laughs> and he said, well, I'm sorry. He said, I've lived here my whole life, and the whales never come in the harbor. Now, understand this harbor is not just some boats. This is, it's a very big harbor. It's got islands in it. It's got a rainforest you can tour. And, and it's gigantic. But uh, he said, but the whales don't come in the harbor. So I thought, okay. So we go ahead and go on this tour. We got like eight kayaks that we have to follow the guide and go through the harbor. I'm like, whoop-de-doo with this, you know. So we're going through the harbor, and he's pointing out like, look down here. We can see some starfish, you know. And over here, we can get out here. We can go on a tour through the rainforest and see all the different kinds of foliage. <laughs> and I'm like, where are the whales? And he's like, the whales don't come in the harbor. So anyway, we get back, and I'm following him, and I'm still kind of talking about I came all the way here for the whales. I'm right behind his kayak. And, uh, and so we're going along, and we're heading back to the dock. Now, understand that the whale-watching boats leave the dock and go out through kind of a jetties out to the ocean. But the whale boats this time pushed off 40 feet from the dock, and they're all right there. And my, our guide turns around and looks at me and says, I can't believe it. The whales are in the harbor. And I'm like, awesome. And so we're, I'm following him. And as we're going along, he's like trying to keep everybody behind him because he wants to keep the kayaks away from the whale-watching boats. And so they all go this way, and I go this way. So Tracy and I, we, I go off to the right, and Tracy's a rule follower, and Tracy's, you know, Gary, Gary. And I'm like, it's all right, honey, because the whale's going to come up right over here. And, uh, you know, she's kind of given up on me a long time ago. So she, we go ahead and we head over this way. And I'm telling you, this is God's honest truth. A 45-foot gray whale comes up right next to our kayak. His eyeball is here. My fist is. And he winks at me. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. He winks at me. And about this time, I'm thinking, that's it. That was worth it all, you know, from the whole trip. And, of course, the guide's yelling at us to come over there. But now I'm satisfied. So we go over, get in line. And, of course, I get rebuked. But it's okay. It's worth it. And, and, we, go, and we go turn in the kayaks. And, and then we walk over to, uh, to where the dock is. As we're walking over to the dock, right next to the dock, this well comes up. I don't know if it's the same well or not, but comes up in breaches way out and splashes down. Kind of like you saying, bye. Nice to see you. Now, why do I tell you this story? I tell you this story because I want you to know that that didn't just happen in a random way. Things like that happen because we have a God who just wants to give. I think we have a God who loves to give so much. He's like, oh, you want a well? I'll bring the wells into the harbor. Okay. Oh, you want to see one jump? I'll have him jump right next to the dock. That is our God. Do not be deceived, James says. 
Do not be deceived. Our God is a giver. He's not a taker. Now, I want to show you a photo of a gift that Tracy and I recently received. If you put that up on the screen there. This is our, this is our granddaughter, Blakely. She was born November 30th. And I've always thought that uh, children, babies, all looked like Winston Churchill <laughs> until I saw my granddaughter. But this is a wonderful, wonderful gift. But I want to tell you um, that one night in Austin while I'm, while I'm holding my granddaughter, I'm just, I was just thinking about the fact that she was born November 30th. And it dawned on me that my father was born November 28th and my mother was born December 2nd. And exactly, exactly between that four-day period, my granddaughter is born. Now, I'm just thinking about that because I know God doesn't do things haphazardly. He's always communicating. God is always communicating. I'm thinking, what are you saying, Lord, through that? And just when I was thinking about that, I got a text from my brother. My brother's a Christian, and he texted me and said, do you realize that Blakely's born exactly between when mom and dad are born? And I thought, yeah, I was, just, I was just thinking about that, and I wonder, what is the significance of that? And as I was thinking about that and talking to the Lord about that, the Lord brought to mind the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, and I want to show you something. All right, Matthew chapter 1, <clears throat> look at the genealogy just for a moment. Starting in verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was born of Isaac, and Isaac Jacob, to Jacob Judah and his brothers, and so forth. Beget, 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 beget. Then you get to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now why does the Word of God make this point? The point is that the Old Testament family tree of Jesus has not been assembled in some haphazard way. The Old Testament family tree of Jesus is perfectly ordered, perfectly planned, and is a powerful evidence of a controlled flow of history. So Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, summarizes this line of descent by pointing out that it contains three groupings of 14. Now, why is that important? Now, understand that, understand this about numbers in the Bible. The number seven or any multiples of seven symbolize perfection. For example, when Israel went into captivity, exile to Babylon, it was for 70 years. Ten multiples of seven would be their perfect full punishment. Also, there is a number that signifies fullness. Besides seven signifying perfection, the number three signifies fullness. That's why the seraphim in Isaiah 6 say holy, holy, holy three times because the fullness of holiness is in God. So in the Old Testament, we have the number seven and number three are numbers of perfection and fullness. Now, the genealogy of Jesus is three groupings of 14. 14 is a multiple of seven, and the generations from Abraham to Christ have three sets of 14. So three multiples of seven. What's the point? 
The point is, guys, our God is in control much more than we think he is. He's in control of the flow, the whole flow of history. Even with free will creatures, he controls the flow of history. And so Christ, the the birth of Christ, is the result of this orderly, perfectly planned, meticulously, mathematically, you know, planned of God. Since God made his promise to Abraham, he moved history forward in his orderly way, purposeful way, balanced way to fulfill his purposes of bringing the Savior to the world. God controls the flow of history. Now, what is his purpose? Why does God control the flow of history? What's the purpose behind it? The God who loves us and who gives and wants to give to us controls things so for those he loves and wants to give to. That is always on his mind. God who is love and has to give, his very nature is to give. He loves us. He wants to give to us. So he controls the flow of things in order to give to us. That's how our God is. Do not be deceived. That's how he really is. Now I want you to think about just for a moment, I'm going back to the story, my story of our granddaughter. I was thinking about the fact, why, why, God, why do you want me to think about my parents in the midst of me holding my granddaughter? And I was thinking, well, you gave me my parents and you took them away. You took them to heaven. But then, so the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. That's what Job said. But the story isn't over, Job. He's going to give again. And I thought God just wanted me to stop and think for a moment. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but the Lord gives again. Here's your granddaughter. He will always give again. That's his very nature. So if you're in a place right now where you feel like I'm in a taken away stage in my life, the Lord gave, but he took it away. I want you to know, hang on, because he's not done. He has to give again. That is how he is. He is the giver. So the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but ultimately the Lord's not a, he's not a taker. He's a giver. He will have to give again. The night uh, our daughter was married. It was the same night my mother died. Now, those of you that have heard me tell this story before, you realize that my mother was 85 when she went to heaven, and she had battled so many issues, heart disease and diabetes, but it was cancer at the end. And we kept praying for her to live to the next thing she wanted to do. She said, I said, what do you want to do, Mom, before you go to heaven? She said, I want to go see all my family up in Illinois and all over the country. And I said, okay, let's pray for that. We pray for that. She takes a trip with her sister. She sees everybody. She's back. I said, okay, what else do you want to do before you go to heaven? And so finally came down to one thing. I said, what else do you want to do before you go to heaven? Because God just kept on sustaining her life, sustaining her life. She said, I want to do one more thing. I said, what's that? She said, I want to be at Chelsea's wedding, my daughter Chelsea's wedding. I said, okay, let's pray for that. We pray for that. So sure enough, she's at the wedding. Two hours after the reception of the wedding, she dies. And before she dies, I look her in the eyes, and, and I say, and I get her attention, and she says, did Chelsea get married? I said, yes, Mom, you were there. She said, oh, good. She closed her eyes, and she dies. So but I want you to point out that it seems like, well, the Lord took away. He took away, but that same night, he gave me a new son, my son-in-law. He always has to give. So if you are in that takeaway kind of stage in your life, I just want you to hang in there because God's not done. He is ultimately a giver. Now back to, you know, understanding how this fits in with Christmas because he actually gets to give the greatest gift of all on Christmas. You know, all through history he's been given, but I think he's been like, couldn't wait to give this one. You ever have a gift you just can't wait to give? 
I think all through history, he's eager to give the greatest, greatest gift. Every day he gives. Lamentations 3.23. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every morning, I think God says, did you like that sunrise yesterday? Here's another one today. That's just how our God is. You know, he gives you air for your lungs. He gives beauty for your eyes to see. He gives music for your ears to hear, taste for your mouth to take in. He gives strength for your needs. He gives friends for your heart. He gives purpose for your day. He gives thoughts for your mind. He's giving, 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 giving. That is our God. And what made the first Christmas, I think, the best is that God finally got to give his best gift, his son. His son for people like you and me who need a savior. So God is ultimately not a taker. He's ultimately a giver. He has to give. He can't help himself. That is our God. Do not be deceived. That is our God. Now, when the angels behold what God has done, understand angels are not omniscient. They don't know everything. They're learning through history. Only God has, you know, is omniscient. Angels are learning through history. When they break out and say glory to God in the highest on that first Christmas, they are doing that because they just understood something. They just got, got it. What did they just get? I want you to understand this about angels. Angels not only watched history, angels took an active part in history. When Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden, it was an angel who stood at the entrance with a flaming sword to block the entrance from them returning. Angels were sent to Abraham before the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Angels gave the law to Moses and Israel. And by the way, I think they were stunned when they watched mankind go out and freely break that law. As angels watched the human history, written in hatred and disobedience and human rebellion. I think they expected a holy God to bring down judgment upon mankind. They expected it because that's what they saw happen to a third of the angels when they rebelled. I mean, I think angels are thinking, you know, if, if we were punished for our disobedience, or some were, the ones who disobeyed, then why shouldn't these creeping, crawling little creatures on this little dusty globe be wiped into oblivion because of their rebellion. But angels watched. They watched the story of mankind played out on the stage of earth, and they watched God do something different than what they had expected. See, in a place of punishment, angels watched God offer himself as a solution to man's sin. Understand this, when the angels delivered the law, the law law to Moses, they also didn't just deliver a set of commandments. They delivered teaching in the law about sacrifice that covers sin. And they had to ponder what that meant. And when the prophet Isaiah predicted that a Savior would be born of a virgin, angels are taking this in. And then when Isaiah went on to say he'll grow up, And he will have the sins of mankind upon himself and crush him as he absorbs the wrath of do that sin. I don't think angels understood what in the world that means. 
They listened, but they didn't fully understand for sure. They couldn't have. I think they wondered, how could a holy God who condemned the sin of the angelic host expect to remain holy if he forgives the sin of mankind? And then one day, something astonishing happened. Angels are flying around in heaven. Just get the picture of Isaiah 6 or Daniel 7, Ezekiel 1, or John, I mean, book of Revelation 4 and 5. The scene with all the angels, myriads and myriads of angels praising God. And then they saw something that blew their minds. The Son of God himself stood up off his throne, took off the crown of glory, laid aside the majestic robes of royalty, and leaves heaven to go to earth and become one of those creeping, crawling creatures. Came a man, came a baby born in Bethlehem to poor parents in this, this poor, poor town. They watched, they all watched as the Son of God, the Prince of Glory, does this. An ancient Greek dramatist advised his fellow craftsmen that God should not be written into their play unless the situation was so serious as to absolutely demand it. Well, if the mess made by man's rebellion is tragic and as hopeless as the Bible says it is, then the angels should have expected nothing less than God stepping onto the stage and a mighty act of redemption could change the mess and make things right again. And angels watched that happen. Angels watched God step onto the stage, the Son of God. And to their utter amazement, I think the miracle of the virgin birth, I think, had to be shielded somehow from their eyes. They couldn't understand what was happening there. But somehow, the Son of God comes and is able to take on flesh from the Virgin Mary and be born a baby. And angels saw him lying in a manger, saw him. They watched the infinite become an infant. Can you think about how mind-blowing that must have been? They watched the creator of history become part of the human story in order to give that story a happy ending. They watched it all. So they saw the wisdom of God in action. They saw God devise a way in which he could take these enemies of his who betrayed him and sinned against him. And he, could, and he had a way in which he, did, he devised a way in which he could bring about forgiveness of sins and they could become at peace with him, become his friends. And the angels watched all this. And I think when they finally saw it and got it, I think they just had to go glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the Wow! I think the angels are wowed. And what they just saw happen. But they didn't finish. Not only do they say glory to God in the highest, but they go on to say this, and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. You know, the old King James Version translates that part of the verse, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Many of us grew up with Christmas cards that had that on it. You know, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But do you know that all the modern translations agree that that is not an accurate translation of that verse from the Koine Greek? NIV translates it this way, And on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. 
NASB translates it, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. ESV translates it, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. See, the point is, even though God is offering peace to all, through Christ, he's offering peace to all, it's only the people who receive Christ and trust him as Savior, Messiah, and Lord who experience this peace. See, we know that there are going to be a global aspects of peace on earth when Jesus comes again. But he's already, though, inaugurated the kingdom of God, and peace is now available now for all those who repent and believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Peace. Peace with God. But what is the key? The key is believing. You know, five times in the New Testament, God is called the God of peace. The God of peace. You can't have peace, true peace, apart from God. He's the God of peace. Jesus said, my peace I give you. My peace I give you. You can't have his peace without him. Apostle Paul said, Jesus himself is our peace. He is our peace. What this means is that the peace of God, the peace of Christ, can never be separated from God himself or Christ himself. If I want peace to rule in my life, then God has to rule my life. I can't separate it. If I want peace to rule my life, then Christ has to rule my life. So the key to peace is keeping together what the angels kept together. That is the glory of God and peace to men. So a heart, if you have a heart that is, that is bent, you know, on showing, you know, the glory of God, glorifying God, then you'll know the peace of God. Romans 15, 13 tells us something really important here. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Important. In believing. In other words, the way God's promises become real for us and we experience peace is in believing those promises. I have to believe them. For me to receive the peace, I have to believe the promise. Romans 5.1, here's a promise. Therefore, having been justified by faith, there's the believing part, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified means that God declares you to be just in his sight. He imputes to you the righteousness of Christ. How do you get that? How do I get this peace that comes with no longer being an enemy of God because my sins are forgiven? I'm adopted in his family. I'm now a family member and a friend. How do I get that? By believing. I repent and believe. I get that peace. Peace with God. Peace with God. Why do I have peace with God if I repent and believe in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord? I have peace with God because all my sins are washed away. I'm no longer his enemy. I'm no longer at odds with him. I've been adopted into his family. He is now for me. He now is for me. I have peace with God. But if I have peace with God, that means I can also have peace with myself no longer hounded with guilt and no longer hounded with shame. I've got peace with God. I'm forgiven of my sins. I'm no longer hounded with fear of judgment to come. I have peace with God. So that's what we get for Christmas. What God gets for Christmas is glory. Wow, you did it. 
you devised a way to bring salvation to sinners on earth. Wow. Glory to God in the highest. That's what God gets for Christmas. Glory. The more people that understand it around the earth, the gospel, the more glory he gets. What do we get for Christmas? We get peace by believing. Peace with God and peace with ourselves. So, Merry Christmas, God. Glory to you in the highest. Glory to you for your amazing gift and amazing love. And Merry Christmas to you. Peace be upon you. Peace with God. Peace with yourself. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we just have to start by saying glory to you. Glory to you, O God. You devised a way to hold justice and love together. You devised a way, Lord, to take what seemed hopelessly lost and turn it all around by the sending of your Son. Glory to you, Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. And Father, I pray for anyone who doesn't yet know you in this room or online right now, that they, they need to know they can have peace with you. Their sins can be forgiven. They can have eternal life. And they can be your friend by believing in Jesus, the Savior. Lord, I pray for all of us who've made that decision to follow Jesus. Lord, I pray that we could walk in peace now, this whole season, and all kinds of things are trying to steal our peace, that we can be at peace because we are at peace with you. No more shame, no more guilt, no more fear. Peace. So I pray, Lord, even now, would you just rest your peace on all of us as we believe your promises, and believe your truth. And I pray this week, Lord, for all the gatherings that will happen this week and next week that, that we'll be part of, that I pray that we tell the story, tell the story of what the angels had to say, that everybody can have this peace, and that more and more people will give you the glory you deserve. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.